Hi, and welcome to Employment Practices Solutions Podcast, Title IX Investigations, Why, When, and Who. I'm your host, Lisa Dishman. Today, we're going to dig into all aspects of Title IX investigations. And while Title IX is our focus, most of what we're going to talk about today really applies to all investigations of misconduct whether for public or private corporations, as well as those institutions that receive federal financial assistance, including state and local educational agencies. Today, I'm joined by EPS consultants, Susan Sorrells and Tanya Gentry, both of whom have broad Title IX experience and are key members of our Title IX investigation team here at EPS. Susan is located in Dallas-Fort Worth and has been with EPS almost from the beginning, joining in 1997. Prior to her work with EPS, Susan was an associate at the law firm of Kelly Hart Hallman in Fort Worth. Susan received her BS and her Juris Doctorate from Texas Tech University. Tanya is a more recent addition to our team at EPS, coming to us from her own consulting firm, Equality Experience. Prior to that, Tanya was a senior attorney with the U.S. Department of Education, Office for Civil Rights. She received her BS from Virginia Union and her JD from the University of North Carolina School of Law at Chapel Hill. I am so happy that both of you are joining me today. Welcome. Susan, let's let's step back and review Title IX broadly. What does Title IX say specifically, and who does it apply to? Right. Well, this is Susan, Lisa, and I really appreciate the opportunity to discuss this very important topic today. And Title IX is shockingly short for as much publicity and as much as we hear about it on a regular basis, you would think it was something very, very lengthy, but it is so short that I can actually read it to you without boring you. So the, the law actually states that no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. And so it's a very short uh, you know, provision with such far reaching implications into you know, our community. So one thing is, one you know, important question is who does that even apply to? And at first blush, you would think, oh, well this would apply to public institutions, which of course it does. But it also applies to any institutions that are receiving federal financial assistance. And so that even means like private universities because they're participating in federal student aid programs. So it applies to basically every university, you know, in the country, uh, as well as even school districts. You know, so we're, we're talking about K through 12 uh, entities as well. So it applies across the board and yet it's a very, very simple, short provision in actuality. Well, thank you for that uh, summary to get us kicked off. Now, Tanya, you have a perspective on Title IX because you worked in the Office of Civil Rights in the Department of Education prior to joining EPS. Tell us a little bit about what your role there entailed and its relationship to Title IX. 
Well, thank you for having me, uh, Lisa. I'm very happy to be here and very happy to be with EPS. Um, so my role entailed a lot, but uh, specifically with regards to Title IX, um, OCR is the enforcement arm of the Department of Education with regards to civil rights enforcement in, in educational institutions. So therefore, I worked on a number of civil rights issues, um, which of course would include Title IX sexual misconduct complaints. Um, there, I led my own investigations, um, as well as served as lead attorney for other investigators where that person may have been a non-attorney investigator. And so providing legal review, insight, mentoring, things of that nature. Um, and if any concerns were found, then I drafted resolution agreements with action items to bring the institutions back into compliance with the appropriate standards as outlined by Title IX. And we closely monitored those agreements as well. So that's pretty much the gist of what I did. Oh, and I also did, uh, <laughs> I forgot. I also gave presentations and spoke to a number of uh, different groups, including school administrators, uh, teachers, students, et cetera. That's an important perspective to bring um, to this particular discussion. So Susan, you've been on the, investigatory side once a complaint has been um, has surfaced in an institution. So how precisely, Susan, does an institution, say a university in particular, comply with its obligations under Title IX? Give us a sense of, of exactly what a university should be poised to do in terms of their compliance efforts. Right. Well, as Tanya was saying, you know, the Department of Education, you know, has a an enforcement entity, the Office of Civil Rights. And so you want to be ready for the Office of Civil Rights. You want to be caught doing the right thing as opposed to doing the wrong thing. So what would that look like? And I think especially for small institutions, one of the most important resources, which is free, that's right, I said free, uh, is to look at the website that the Office of Civil Rights has. The, the website has all kinds of important guidance and resources that will help any institution develop a framework to respond and address complaints. So the most important thing as far as compliance goes is to have a framework in place where every complaint is handled in the same fashion and there are steps along the way. There are people responsible at the institution for each particular step. And that framework doesn't have to be that complicated. It can be something that just by looking at the guidance that a smaller institution can implement themselves. Of course, there are also, uh, you know, assistance you can, you can get from outside counsel, from attorneys to help you know, put together that framework. But that's really the first thing you want to do as far as your obligations under Title IX is be, be prepared, be prepared before you get those complaints, make sure you're already doing the right thing. And then if the Office of Civil Rights shows up to do any kind of audit or any kind of investigation into a particular matter, uh, again, they're going to catch you doing the right thing. So that brings us to your recent white paper, Tanya. Part of doing the right thing is uh, identifying the best possible investigator within the institution or outside of the institution to handle the complaint. So um, 
who is the typical Title IX investigator and how do they find themselves in that role? Well, as Susan stated, um, there's a plethora of information on the U.S. Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights website. So um, an individual could go there and get information about the laws, information about policy guidance. But when we talk about becoming Title IX investigators, uh, there are a number of paths that that individual could take to get there. Um, and typically, it's nothing that uh, an individual would find on the website. So um, I would say based on my observations and interactions with the different Title IX investigators I've met, um, they generally have um, different paths because this is such a niche area of the law. Um, so you may have su attorneys like Susan, right, who is a phenomenal investigator and she's working on an investigation for another matter. The company loves her and so therefore they pull her over to Title IX issues as well. Um, you may also have former athletes that are familiar with the um, athletic equality part of Title IX. And so since they're already familiar with some portions of the law, then it's a natural progression to expand over into the sexual misconduct side as well. Um, and lastly, I'd probably say the other group of people that I've met um, would be former school administrators. And they have a general working knowledge of policies, procedures, the law in general. And once they receive the investigative training, uh, then they're able to transition into the investigator role. But again, there's no set path to get there, um, but those are typically the main uh, ways that I've seen people get to that, to that point. That's interesting. There are um, a lot of disparate backgrounds, it sounds like, that, that might bring someone into the role of a Title IX investigator. Um, there are likely times, and I know both of you have broad investigations experience with Title IX and otherwise, and there are likely times, we know in our business, that hiring an outside investigator could, for a number of reasons, make the most sense. So, Susan, you've got more than 20 years of experience um, in this realm. When might someone consider using an outside investigator for a Title IX complaint? Well, when the determination is being made as to do you do this internally or go outside, you always have to think about the subject matter of the investigation. And, you know, it has been, Title IX has been interpreted to include sex-based harassment, as well as sexual violence allegations. So you're potentially, you're potentially investigating things of a very, very sensitive, personal, intimate nature. And so um, you would like to have a very impartial, unbiased take on what has been going on. And so many times an outside investigator is more helpful because the respondent, which you know, also could be uh, you know, referred to as maybe the accused in that complaint, maybe somebody who is publicly known. It could be you know, the head basketball coach at a major university. Well, the internal people very likely don't want to have anything to do with that investigation. And the administration may determine we need an objective outside look at that. Or it could be the dean of a college. So the nature of who is involved in the subject matter 
you may really benefit from having that outside look at the situation. And another reason to go outside may be that uh, an institution is just overwhelmed for whatever reason at the moment the workload has increased they're overwhelmed and these situations deserve sufficient attention in any institution and so if an office can't provide that sufficient attention and in an investigation then they really need to consider going outside Let's break it down a little bit further. Tanya, you outlined really the qualities of the quintessential Title IX investigator in the recent article that you wrote um, for EPS. And the thing that you started with was uh, ideally an investigator on a Title IX complaint and has a diverse background. So tell us what you mean by diverse and why is that particular piece of an investigator's background so important? You know, Lisa, when I was working on the white paper, uh, I think I saw a very simplified definition of diversity as simply understanding and respecting that each individual is unique. And so the more diverse experiences we've had, the more diverse we typically become, which allows us to be more tolerant, adaptable, and relatable when we're conducting investigations. And that is important because unfortunately, anyone can be a victim of sexual misconduct. You have people from all groups, all backgrounds, um, doesn't matter their education level, their race, their sex, um, how many countries they visited, you, anybody could be a subject to um, finding themselves in that particular situation. And then you add on the various witnesses that you'll be interacting with, as well as faculty, staff, um, any other interested parties um, that would be part of the investigative process. You're dealing with a lot of different personalities, um, a lot of cultures, communication styles, et cetera. Um, and it can pretty much run the gamut. So the goal is to be relatable to all sides and get the best evidence available. Um, and if you can do that uh, with the understanding and respect of diverse backgrounds in an impartial manner, as Susan indicated, then you're definitely on the right track. That makes sense. You, you, the second characteristic that you mentioned was congeniality, and I think of miscongeniality. Um, does that mean that an investigator has to remain upbeat um, all the time as the investigation unfolds? That seems like an almost impossibility. Tell me what. No. <laughs> No, 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 of course not. Well, actually, I like that movie, too. And I really like Sandra Bullock. That's my girl. So I, I could have said um, being you should be collegial, but I figured, hey, why not the movie reference since I like Sandra? Um, but no, that doesn't mean that you have to be upbeat all of the time. Um, that just means that even if you have a diverse background, then you need to be pleasant enough to be able to establish a, meaning, a meaningful rapport with the individuals that you'll be interacting with. Um, you have to have a certain temperament because a lot of times when these investigations are occurring, emotions run extremely high and understandably so, and that's on both sides. Um, so again, I think that being a congenial person will provide the investigator with the skill set of being able to diffuse uh, potential disagreements 
And again, the goal is always to get the, the, the best evidence possible. And so the more relatable you are, the more congenial you are, the more people will want to talk to you and, and they'll want to give you the information that you need in order to resolve the complaint. That makes sense. And the third quality that you mentioned was empathy. And it, it's, it's probably uh, maybe obvious given the, the other two characteristics why that one is so critical. But specifically in Title IX, Tanya, why did you point out empathy as a, as a distinct characteristic that's important? You're absolutely right. It does piggyback off of the, the first two um, topics that we, we were discussing. Um, again, this work is not easy. It's, emotions are extremely high. Lives are changed regardless of the outcome on both sides. Um, a lot of times, uh, many individuals don't feel heard, um, and they might even be afraid or feel that they're being judged. And so since these individuals have gone through and are going through a very difficult process, um, as well as coming from different backgrounds, um, it's important that you're able to put yourself in their shoes. Now, that doesn't mean that you're in agreement or in harmony with their feelings. You still you do not deviate from a state of impartiality. You have to remain neutral, of course. However, Empathy to me is whether I agree with you or not, or even if I don't have an opinion, which is the best way to be during these investigations, I understand how you might feel, and I understand your expectations and why you may communicate with me in a particular way, etc. That makes such good sense. And Susan, those characteristics are probably extremely useful in non-Title IX investigations too. You've had a lot of experience with Title IX investigations. Are there other things that a skilled Title IX investigator brings to the table in addition to the, the qualities that Tanya mentioned? Well, I think another key quality would be the ability to be patient. Typically, when I'm conducting the Title IX investigations, I'm speaking with young adults who are between the ages of 18 and 23. Many times they're scared, afraid, whether it's of the process or of another student potentially. So I have to be really patient. And sometimes I'm listening to information that ultimately some of it just may not be relevant, but I continue to listen to that person and let him or her tell their story, give their perspective. And Tanya mentioned that, you know, whether they feel like they're heard, it is a critical responsibility of an investigator to ensure that whomever they're interviewing feels heard. And if, and if that's not done, then, then it's the wrong investigator. So the person needs to be patient and make students feel um, comfortable when they're involved in these situations. And I'll, I'll give one example. There was a, a young man who had, was a respondent in an investigation, and of course it was personal, intimate, you know, subject matter that we were dealing with. And he had informed the institution that he was going to bring his mother as his advisor. And that's kind of what they refer to the person that comes along with uh, the person being interviewed is as an advisor. And it can be a friend, 
a staff member, a family member, or an attorney. So he had chosen his mother. And so I went ahead and called him ahead of time. And I said, you can bring whomever you would like, and it's perfectly fine to bring your mother, but I want you to know, I'm going to be very, asking very intimate details about your sexual relationship with the complainant. Do you feel comfortable with that? And he said that he did. And then even in the process of that interview, at one point, the mother actually offered to get up and leave. She actually told her son, if you would like me to leave, I will. And, and he said no, then he was comfortable with that. And so, you know, that's just an example of a situation where you always have to be thinking ahead. What, what could the potential pitfalls be? And I need to make sure that uh, the students are, are, are aware of what the discussion's going to be, and that, that just will make them more comfortable. Our job is not to trap any of these interviewees or put them in a corner. Our job is to get them to talk and open up and tell their story. So that's sometimes that's a very different skill set than what some lawyers may have, because that's not uh, how you typically would run you know, a trial or a deposition at all. It's a very different skill set. And I think what Tanya said was right on the money uh, with the empathy and congeniality. And honestly, the work is exhausting. And I think as an investigator, you always have to keep in mind how many hours are you comfortable uh, you know, handling these matters to where you can still be patient and congenial, because I think everybody has a limit. And so maybe it's time to end the day at two o'clock or three o'clock as far as the actual meeting. So just sort of a self-awareness as to are, are you as an investigator actually showing those characteristics is very important. Those are such good, um, insightful points and, and, and great reminders for those investigating these types of complaints. I'm going to shift the focus a bit. Tanya, in your white paper, you also addressed some of the issues, the broader issues that institutional leaders can proactively take in assessing the attributes when they know the campus environment, for example, that's one really knowing your environment, having clear policies and procedures and practices around how Title IX complaints are handled and establishing clear lines of communication among the faculty and staff who might be involved in the investigation. So let's break those down just a bit. Let's start with knowing the environment. Say more about what you mean specifically around knowing the environment for an institution. Okay, when I say know the environment, um, I mean that literally and figuratively. Um, literally because you need to know the physical locations on your campus that might be helpful to the investigator. For example, um, we might be dealing with a uh, a sexual misconduct investigation that involves domestic violence where an, a person is allegedly assaulted in a particular area. Um, that individual has given us a list of witnesses. Right now, it's he say, she say, if you talk to one of the administrators, he or she might say, oh wait, I know Professor so-and-so is always in that area at that time. And they might be able to identify additional persons that can provide you with very helpful information um, during the course of your investigation. Um, but I also say figuratively because it's important to know your campus environment, meaning your campus climate. 
it's important to um, understand the culture of your climate. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, the culture of your campus, um, because that is going to help provide uh, context to the investigator whenever they're speaking to different individuals and they're looking for certain aspects of the investigation. I think Susan mentioned a lot of times um, we're talking to individuals that might be in a different age group than us or may, again, going back to diversity, may have different experiences. And so going in with a strong knowledge of the overall feel of what you might encounter is definitely helpful from a preparation standpoint. So it's the physical environment and sort of the cultural, um, the metaphysical part of the environment too. Um, you also mentioned clear policies and procedures. Those are always helpful, but it sounds like they are especially important with regard to investigations and especially Title IX investigations. So tell us more about that. Absolutely. Well, the first thing is they're important because if you don't, if the school doesn't have clear policies and procedures, then they will be in violation of Title IX. Um, as Susan stated, uh, Title IX does have a section where, even though, like she said, there's not terribly long, there is a section that talks about grievance procedures, um, ensuring that the school has grievance procedures that are understandable, um, that are highly publicized, uh, and things of that nature. And so I won't go into the specifics of that, but again, it's a legal requirement that they have policies and procedures. Um, beyond that, Policies, procedures, and even internal practices structure the course of the investigation and allow a more uniform process. And so I view it as the blueprint for success for the investigator, as well as the, the blueprint of what the university's expectations are of an investigator. Of course, the investigator is there to fact find and obtain evidence throughout the course of the Title IX investigation. However, how that information is gathered, how it's presented, um, things of that nature, that that would definitely be uh, clear. I'm sorry, that would definitely definitely be fleshed out in if you have clear policies and procedures. That makes sense. And you also mentioned clear lines of communication that probably dovetails into the policy and procedure issue. And it may seem obvious, but are larger institutions more prone to, to, is, to issues here as it relates to clear lines of communication, or is this a universal problem, and whether the, it's a small or large institution? Right. Well, again, I think it's lines of communication is twofold. Um, as I was saying about knowing your campus environment, uh, it's important to have clear lines of communication between school officials and the investigator as well as the school officials themselves. Um, I personally worked on a complaint. Uh, I was an expert, I served as an expert witness, and it was very unfortunate because the school found themselves in a lot of trouble just based on miscommunication. Um, an individual had some notes, they didn't turn them over to the other side, and it looked like they were trying to hide information when it was really just a miscommunication. So that's an example of how communicating between each department um, is definitely helpful. And so for larger institutions, then that's going to be critical. 
But even at smaller institutions, you have to ensure that there are clear lines of communication between staff members and the investigator. And I have another story, and, and then I'll, I'll be done. But um, I was working on a, on a complaint and um, didn't really have extremely clear policies and procedures, no internal practices uh, or protocol whatsoever. And so um, I think as Susan mentioned, the att attorneys are trained to interact in a different manner than Title IX investigators. And so sometimes they are advocating for their client and they're very zealous and they can be adversarial. And so um, there were some interactions between myself and legal counsel that were unexpected. Um, and it was a little tense at first because I, I didn't even know that he was a part of the process. Like no one even told me that he was a part of the process until later in the investigation. And so I say all of that to say, it just, even though the investigation was completed, it was legally sufficient. Um, I don't feel like I did my best work because it was so, it was such an adversarial environment. And I was so confused because I didn't know who I could talk to. I didn't have a person that was identified as my contact person. Um, again, we had no internal protocol. And so I was just basically um, trying to utilize my soft skills, uh, my empathy, um, my diverse background, um, and my understanding of um, how attorneys interact with each other sometimes uh, to get through the investigation. However, had there been clear policies and procedures, as well as uh, contact persons, internal practice, things of that nature, then we could have uh, avoided that particular situation. Susan, did you have something to add there? Yes, as far as communication, you just, you never quite know what's going to arise in some of these investigations. For example, respondents commonly are represented by counsel and many of those attorneys have backgrounds in criminal defense work. And so they may not have a fundamental understanding of how Title IX works. And multiple times I've spoken to these criminal defense attorneys and they'll refer to their guy and my guy as though I'm representing somebody. And so it's very important to be communicating directly and say, although I've been retained by the institution, I'm not representing the complainant and I'm not representing the institution. So I don't have a guy, I don't have somebody. And that's unusual for them. They're not accustomed to dealing with those situations. So communicating that, accurately. It, it also helps it be less adversarial because Tanya is absolutely right. It can become adversarial, you know, before, before you know it. And, and that's when you're going to get less information I have found. And so it, one situation I even had, you know, a witness who was represented by counsel who at first we kind of got off on the wrong foot and I made sure to have a conversation where the tone changed so that um, this witness's attorney knew that uh, I, I did not represent a specific interest. So communication is key. Tanya is exactly right. Uh, sometimes parents can get involved. I've had, uh, you know, parties give my cell phone number to their parents and I've had parents reach out to me directly, you know, multiple times. So that kind of has to be finessed. 
because obviously they're important individuals, but they're not involved directly in the process. Their child is actually an adult, even though they may not be, uh, they may not be acting like an adult, but officially at age 18, their, their child is an adult. And so somehow you maintain that communication, but you also maintain the integrity of the investigation. So communication is key exactly as, as Tanya said. All good points from both of you. So, so Susan, just leveraging that, can you pull it all together for us? A complaint uh, lands on your desk on a Friday afternoon, you're in a small university. Um, what should happen? What should the institution do so that they are on the right path from the beginning? Right. Well, hopefully the institution already has a framework in place. And the very first thing that would need to happen when a, a complaint shows up is that the complaining party, the reporting party needs to know what resources are available to him or her. And that means everything from campus life, student life, counseling, medical attention, uh, law enforcement input, basically every single resource that student uh, might need, they need to be informed of. And even when I do interviews further on in the process, sometimes I will ask the person, are you available? I mean, are you, are you aware of what is available to you on the campus, you know, aware of what can help you? And they are always responding, yes, I've been notified, I've been told, I've been given resources. And that's always a great thing because it's not, as the investigator, I'm coming in after the very beginning of it. So it's always nice to find out that yes, that complaining party right at the beginning found out what the institution had to, to offer. And then after that, you want to begin things promptly. You never want to have something just sitting for days and days. You need to begin the investigation as soon as possible. And ultimately, if there is a determination that there, you know, indeed was some discrimination or harassment, there should be effective and reasonable remedies put in place. And reasonable is a key word, in my opinion, because, for example, in one investigation, um, that I conducted, the entire complaint was over one comment, one very short, brief statement between two students. And ultimately, you know, it was found that the respondent did violate university policy with that one statement. However, the, you know, the remedial measures could be very, very different than they would be you know, for example, with some kind of a, you know, a physical assault or something that had been more pervasive. And so, you know, the, the remedies can be, uh, you know, very broad as, to, as far as what options a university has, but they should fit the misconduct. They should not be too egregious or, uh, you know, not, not tough enough. And one thing we've found now is that if um, respondents are being, you know, expelled or suspended for a significant period of time, if they feel like they didn't have due process and they weren't heard, they're coming back after the institutions to, to basically sue them for a violation of, of due process. So making sure that they're heard in the process, but then also that whatever remedy is a reasonable one is just very, very key. So the universities are in a tough position because they're between those two, you know, the complainant and the respondent, and, and they're charged with 
ultimately what, what you and I might say is just doing the right thing. And you would hope that would be easy, but it's, it's, it's not always easy. So hopefully all of these, you know, processes we've talked about today can be very, very helpful in doing that right thing. That's such a good summary, Susan, and such a, a good note for us to end on. Um, thank you, Susan and Tanya. It's such important information. Thank you also to our listeners for joining us. You can read both Susan and Tanya's white papers and learn more about EPS services at our website, epspros.com. That's EPS. PROS.com. You can listen to this podcast and the rest of our feed and share it with others in both SoundCloud and on Apple Podcasts. And you can find us everywhere on social media as well. We'd love to hear your feedback, your questions, and to better understand the employment practices challenges you face in your organization. We hope you'll join us for upcoming podcasts. Thanks again.